0: Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. For those of you who were going on last week's bulletin, I changed. So my apologies if it messed up. Uh, I know I messed up at least one small group that works in advance. But now you get to hear two passages in one week. But uh, nevertheless, we're looking at Matthew. We're continuing. This is the second part of a message that was began last week. Or In one sense, this is the, uh, the, the opposite side of the coin a message that needs to be seen because there's two uh, important dimensions. Uh, All of these are part of our fall series, Rhythms and Roots, where we are being reminded that we are rooted in the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus Christ has given to us, and that has a tremendous impact as we are reminded of that and continue to remind ourselves. And that there are rhythms. Sometimes they're called duties because they are explicitly stated that we are to do these. But when we look at duties, we tend to just check them off. And then assume, simply because we've gone through the motions, we've done them well. As rhythms, we're reminded that we're to do these things on a regular basis, but we're not rigid necessarily in how we do them. But in so doing, we're not checking anything off, but we are reinvigorating our faith. We are being renewed because we're continually being reconnected with the foundation of our faith, which is the gospel of Christ. And the rhythm that we're looking at right now, we began last week and also today, is the rhythm of serving. Last week, as we looked in Mark's account, we looked. I focused on the preparation for serving, which is Jesus is very clear in that passage and the one that we'll read today as well, that we are in constant need of being served by Jesus and the neglect of being served. In other words, by not constantly reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done for us, preaching the gospel to ourselves, and then jumping headlong into service, actually is a denial of the very reason that Jesus came, because Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. We must be a people, if we are called by his name, who are constantly being served by Christ through his death and his resurrection, and being reminded of that. And yet at the same time, this passage is a clear implication that we are called, if we're called by Christ, to be a people who do serve. And so we uh, come back to the same story. Rather than Mark's account, we look at Matthew's account, Um, which just has a few other details, just to break up the monotony. Uh, Looking at it from another way, we come to the passage this morning. Uh, We'll begin for the sake of context in Matthew 20, verse 17. Read through verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we consider your word now, we pray that you would be speaking to us, not only from the written page, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would open our minds and our hearts, that we might see your grace, our need, and your love poured out in Christ, in whom the Holy Spirit is filling us and conforming us to become like. Father, may this not be a time of mental exercise, but a time of serious reflection, and reorientation, that our lives might more and more be a reflection of the love of Christ to this world that is in need of hope. Father, renew us, renew our own hope that our lives might be used for the sake of your kingdom. I pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen. It was William Shakespeare who first said, some men are born great, others achieve greatness, and still others have greatness thrust upon them. It was, I understand, the first tweet ever offered, and it was. And while that is a saying that people have repeated through the years, it's also been a saying that people have tweaked through years as well. For instance, in 1925, uh, an editorial appeared in the Boston Post concerning a a political candidate who the newspaper was evidently not endorsing. And their summary statement of their their thoughts of this man's candidacy was this, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and others thrust greatness upon themselves. And even more contemporary and a little bit more cynical, Another columnist writing, and I don't recall the occasion for the writing, but he says, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some simply hire public relations firms. So we all have opinions of what it is to be great, or to be thought great, how to become great, or whether it's necessary to be great in order to be thought great. Greatness is hardwired into us, and it's probably not just because of our Americanism, but I believe it's hardwired into us regardless, just into our our humanity, our our human DNA. Many of us consider that greatness is the just reward for our hard work and for our perseverance, and others just consider themselves to be great because they are the beneficiaries of a good DNA. But whatever the reasons, there is a sense in which most of us, if not all of us, in one way or another, seek greatness. Some seek greatness simply by the fact that they would declare themselves not to be great. Therefore, they're certainly greater than those who declare themselves to be great. little psychological twist. Well, our Lord has some opinions on greatness as well, and this passage itself is one of the clearest illustrations of what our Lord thinks about greatness and what greatness is. Now, the situation is obvious as we look at this. You have two guys, James and John, known as the uh, sons of Zebedee, also known as the sons of thunder because of their fiery personalities, their intensity, uh, their their toughness. And so James and John, at least as Matthew records and Mark is not, they bring their mommy to talk to Jesus so they can ask for something. At least that's what it says here. James and John, these tough guys, these strong guys, the ones who are going to take on the world, they bring mommy to ask for them uh, and for this guy that they've been walking with. Now, some scholars also suggest that James and John were actually Jesus' biological cousins, and so that their mother, who would have been Mary's sister, which would have made their mother perhaps a favorite aunt. And maybe they just figured they had a better shot if you bring the favorite aunt to ask the question. I mean, who's going to turn down the request from their favorite aunt? Regardless, as James and John and their mommy come up, and they ask Jesus for something, and Jesus says, what is it you want? And so she said, as they also requested that her sons would sit on the right and the left of Jesus as he reigns, as the king. They essentially wanted to be co-vice presidents in the kingdom so that they would be able to exercise authority, to do good things, to help as many people as possible. We're assigning to them the, the best of motives. And Jesus says, look, you don't understand what you're asking. And he asks them a question. Can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink from? And they think that he's asking a question, do you have what it takes? And they say very confidently, we can. We can handle whatever is dished out. We're on it. We're ready to take on the entire world. I mean, they were very confident in their response, very assured. And Jesus does, I think somewhat amused, respond to them and say, you will actually drink from the cup. In other words, you will experience the same kind of suffering and disappointment and abandonment that I am experiencing and yet, it's not for me to say who's going to sit at my right or the left. God, the Father, who is sovereign in all things, he is the one who's determined who is going to have those positions and who sits and who is where. And then we find the others hearing about the situation, that they learned that James and John and their mom went and asked Jesus for this position of prestige. And they began to become indignant, is what the text tells us, which means they began acting childish pointing fingers, grumbling, whining about such inappropriate behavior. and Most scholars would suggest that their response was not so much because they were consumed with righteous anger that they would ask something so inappropriate, but because James and John beat them to the punch, asked for the very thing they wanted, but they were more passive about it, hoping that something would just be, they would have greatness thrust upon them as opposed to achieving or asking for it. Jesus gathers them all together and he says, I'm going to address this issue for you. And he begins to address the whole idea of greatness. And he turns everything upside down. And just as a master director who's about to have a play that has an impact on people, Jesus sets the stage. He asks the question that they all would have recognized, all would have emotionally responded to You know the Gentile leaders how they exercise authority over those who are beneath them. These are guys who would not have been in positions of prestige. While not the lowest, they were basically the part of the great unwashed, the ignored, the nameless, faceless people of society. Known to those who they worked with, those in their circles, but the elites couldn't care less about these people. So likely they would have been frustrated with the way that the world functioned realizing that there was a status that they would never achieve that they were not anything great although they certainly had dreams of greatness as is demonstrated by their behavior and the question that they're asking of jesus but knowing that there's just no way that they would be great they had embraced the same mindset that most of us do in terms of determining who's great and who's not the one who has the most and has the most people working for them That's the person who is great. That's the standard of the world. That's the way things always work. They would have implicitly understood that. And when Jesus says, you understand how things work, don't you? Their emotions were grabbed. And then he says, that's not the way it's going to be for you, for anybody who's part of the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't work that way. And it flips it upside down, turns it inside out, and says that greatness is not a one who is on top, who owns the most and who rules the most. It's the person who serves the most, and the one who is going to be greatest of all is not only going to be the one who serves, but even becomes a slave indebted to the people that they serve. That's genuine greatness, and rather than leaving it as a moral platitude, Jesus points to himself, the gospel incarnate, and says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, or literally translated, he did not come to be deaconed to, but to be a deacon. It's the Greek word for service, That Jesus is exercising the whole function of deacon, serving the people who are around him, whether disciples or really all of the earth, as he came to bless the people who are around him by giving his life as a ransom for many. Now, the word ransom, as we talked about last week, is a significant word that we must understand. I won't go into great detail, and I don't do this often, but if you were not here, I would encourage you to listen online so that you understand just how important and significant that word is. But the word ransom is not one we use very frequently, and so it should grab our attention. The word ransom says that a price was paid in order to set people who were in bondage free. Jesus paid the price to set free as he's speaking to the disciples, but through them to us as well. He's telling them that you were enslaved. You were in bondage really to your own self-interest. That's what the context of the passage tells us. And you couldn't do anything about it. No matter how hard you worked, no matter how much you would have achieved, you were still enslaved to your own self-interests. And I came and I gave my life and paid the price that set you free from being enslaved to your own self-interest. Now, one of the things that as we talked about last week is that's how Jesus served us and that's how he continues to serve us Because his blood that was shed once for all is continuing to cleanse us and to set us free when sometimes we go back to where we were before. While we are free, we act at times as if we are in prison. We still are driven by our own self-desires. And sometimes we even serve and do good things in order to get good things in response because our motive is simply to feed our desire for greatness, get people that will admire us, think highly of us, improve our reputation. Jesus says, I came in order to serve you. Not to be served, in order that you would be set free. Now, it's an interesting thing as we consider what Jesus says there. The clear implication, though, of this passage, where we normally go, is not wrong. I believe we just skip over the importance of continually being served by Jesus. But the clear implication is that those who are called by the name of Christ, those who have been set free by Christ, those who are in Christ, are expected to be servants as well. Not only just to be servants, but servants in a pattern, reflecting the life and the service of Christ himself. And declaring, not only will I serve you, but reminding the people that we serve that in Christ they also can be redeemed because the ransom has been prayed, that they can not only come out of their situation, but they can be free from being slaved to their own circumstance and self-interest as well. The clear implication there is that we are called to be servants. I also think it's interesting when I look at this passage... Not only what Jesus then says, but what he doesn't say. He doesn't confront them about their desire to be great. He just says you're approaching it in a way that's not consistent. You don't understand the kingdom. He doesn't say it's just wrong to desire to be great because the fact is it gives them a formula of what real greatness is. And so the fact that you or I might want to be great itself is not necessarily wrong ambition. The question is whether we are willing to submit and subordinate our desires, our designs, to the way the kingdom is designed and where true greatness is found. And Jesus says that true greatness is found not in being served, but in serving other people. The Apostle Paul later picks up on this and just says, in a way that is very important for us to consider, because it really is the encapsulating of this entire passage, when he writes to the Ephesians and says, Look, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, we're being reminded, even as Jesus is saying to them here, if you are in me and I have served you, you've become my workmanship, my craftsmanship. And what I'm doing is I'm at work within you in order that you will also not only benefit from the relationship with me, but that you will bring benefit to other people because of my work within you. You will do good works that God has prepared in advance. In other words, he's gifted you, he's equipped you, to do particular things, to bear fruit in particular ways. And Christ is now in you and empowering you to do those things. That is the clear implication of this passage, that those who are followers of Christ will be servants just as Christ was a servant, even as Christ is serving us. Now, there are some things that we need to understand. I say again, it's vitally important that we understand the necessity of us being served by Jesus even before we serve because otherwise we post, we move into self-righteousness rather than acting in righteousness. But service is actually necessary for our righteousness. If we want to grow in righteousness, while righteousness counted as ours comes by faith, righteousness by definition is faith that propels us to action. And so if there's no action, there is no real righteousness. All the knowledge, all the theology that you have, no matter how right, how precise, it's just swelling your head like a head cold. It is doing you or anybody else around you no good whatsoever. You may cough and spit on people once in a while, but it is not bringing a blessing to anybody if it's not accompanied by good works. That's one of the things that we need to understand by the definition of righteousness itself. We also need to realize that apart from being served by Christ, there is no difference between Christian service and any other kind of service. I mean, there's nothing in particular that we do that isn't done in the world. What distinguishes our service is not the quality of our service, but the fact that we are empowered and that we have something that others do not have. We are able to serve because we are demonstrating the one who has served us, Christ, who will serve them in a way that will enable them to be free in a way that mere service cannot. And so we need to be a people who go and serve, but at the same time being empowered by being served by Christ and never moving beyond that. But even with that understanding, if I was to stop there, and perhaps some of you wish I would, there are... Things in this text that help us to understand what it means to serve. How are we to serve? At least addressing questions that seem to be pretty common in evangelical churches. This one, as well as other ones that I've been associated with. Because there are a lot of questions. There are a lot of things that seem to be confused. Now, some of these things, as I touch on them, you're going to say, some of you will say, of course. And I think that's great. And I'm well aware that some of you are far superior to me in your service. in the extent that you've done, the fruitfulness of that that in one sense for me to be preaching to you is inappropriate, because you have done so much, you do so much, and you rejoice in Christ so much. And there's others who don't know where to begin, or what it is they ought to do, or who it is that they ought to serve, and are there limitations to what we ought to do? And we want to address those things this morning as we look at this particular text. And the first thing that I would draw our attention to is that in order to serve effectively and in the way that Christ served, is that we need a very fundamental need. We need to be aware of the needs that are around us. That's probably the ultimate, of course. But we can't overlook it. Jesus was obviously aware of the needs that the disciples had. We see that both in what he said and the timing of which he said it. He was aware that they were in need of spiritual reorientation, as well as the new birth that would come to theirs by faith, because they were thinking in the same way that everybody else was thinking. They were not thinking and understanding in the way of the kingdom. And so Jesus recognized that they needed a reorientation. He recognized that there was spiritual renewal needed because they were slaves to their own desires, and they didn't even recognize that they were slave. slaves. They thought they were free, doing what they wanted to do. And they needed a kingdom understanding of what greatness is and what ambition is and what service is. And from that, it's a reminder that you and I, if we are going to serve effectively, we need to be aware of the needs that are around us The needs of our family, our friends, our neighbors, our community, even the needs throughout the world, we need to be aware. And to one degree or another, many of us are aware of certain needs. But the fact is we continue to be stuck in some ways as a slave to our own self-desires. We see things in a certain way, in a certain paradigm. We notice certain things and we miss other things that are so obvious and so clear because we see in a particular way. We've just become conditioned to that. Jesus is serving us to free us from that and open our eyes that we might see the needs that are around us. But we need first to be aware that we have need to be aware and that we're not always aware. Let me use a story to help us to understand what I mean by this. There's a story, an old story, of Winston Churchill as he was prime minister in England, who apparently really disdained going to a lot of the social kind of events that were necessary for his office at the time. And He was tired of people really being insincere, not paying attention, going through, putting on airs, pretense, pretending to care. And so he went one evening to this party deciding that he was going to essentially pull the prank to prove his theory that people were not listening. And so as he would greet the guests, laugh with them, tell stories, before he would dismiss and move on to the next guest, he would grab a hand put his arm on the shoulder of the person, lean in and whisper into their ear, I just killed my wife. The first response was, how nice. He went person to person recognizing that, see the context uh, that they were in and the message he was declaring were so incongruent that people were not listening. They knew the words, they all spoke English. But it was just above them and something that was so obvious and in their face they didn't hear, they didn't understand. And so they responded like anybody does in an event like that. Oh, isn't that nice? Or some variation of that. Until after he had done this with several, he spoke with one rather crusty old man. So he leaned over with that and he said, I just killed my wife. His response was the first one that was different. He said, I'm sure she had it coming. (laughs) Now, for full disclosure, I've heard this story from different preachers and preachers have like books and books and books of stories that are great stories and almost none of them are actually true. And I have no idea whether it's a true story or not, but I really don't care because it serves my purpose right now. (laughs) Because whether Churchill did that or not, the reality is it paints the picture of our condition. We get so used to the way things are, we see. And when there's an incongruency from our desire to see things, it just goes past us. It goes over our head. And so while we are aware that there are great needs, and we may even be aware of needs, we need to be aware that Jesus needs to serve us so that our awareness of needs increases so that we can see things that perhaps we are not seeing, see things that we are missing. So the first thing that we understand from Jesus and the way that he's acting and addressing the disciples is that we need an awareness of needs in order for us to be effective in serving needs. The second thing is relating to... What kind of service? What, is it that, what kind of needs are we supposed to be meeting? And this becomes a big question for a lot of evangelical Christians and has been for some time. Without any question, the most important need is the spiritual need. That was what Jesus was addressing first. It's the renewal that he was addressing with the disciples here. But that's not the only need that those who are followers of Christ are called to be meeting. If you look at Jesus' life and his passion as instructions, he is consistently meeting physical needs, tangible needs as well. Whether it was healing, or feeding, or raising from the dead, all of those were meeting needs, serving people in ways that they couldn't serve themselves. The pouring out of grace. Now I get some who are, more theologically inclined than others, the first response that you're going to have is, he did all those miracles in order to validate his position. Because he did the miracles, people recognized he was who he said he was and that they could hope in him, and then their spiritual needs would be met. So basically, it was a marketing tool. Jesus did miracles so that he could get you to the second phase so that he could explain what was really important. It was a bait-and-switch type of technique. At least that's what we would have to believe if we were consistent with most of the 20th century of evangelical Christianity. If you are of a certain age, an age of which I now am more fondly referring to as those who are chronologically gifted, most of your life has been lived in a time where you would have heard a phrase such to emphasize the importance of spiritual needs at the exclusion of the tangible needs by something such as, well, would you rearrange the furniture on the deck of the Titanic? I mean, if people are sinking, the only thing that matters is they get saved. And as a result, for the better part of the 20th century, the more evangelical, the more conservative of a church that you are a part of, the less likely you are to engage with the people of the poor because all you were interested in evangelism, anything else, not only took your eyes off of what is important, it began to smack of, well, liberal social gospel, meeting physical, tangible needs for things that are dying anyway. All we are supposed to do is get people saved. And I in no way want to minimize the importance of the spiritual nature, that Christ alone renews our spirit, and that it is a spiritual dimension that is important. But we also need to be reminded that Christ didn't die only for our spirit, but the promise of the resurrection is that the body itself will also be raised. We were created after the image of God, and that's not only our spirit, but physically. We are somehow reflection of the grace of God. And therefore, every person who has ever been born is worthy of receiving dignity and honor, and mercy, and service. But for some reason, it's difficult for us to process this. And so we begin to ask questions like, where is the line? And are we going to delve into becoming a social gospel church? And it's an issue that this church has had history, and even recent history, as that was a question that was brought to my attention by some when we last year began participating in, with the homeless shelter, bringing the homeless of our community into our building and ministering to them in a tangible way. In particular, because the way that we were participating was to minister to their tangible needs, not proselytizing, not handing out tracts, and sharing the gospel if the opportunity arose to give them hope. But we were not initiating evangelistic conversations while they were here. We were simply trying to demonstrate the love of Christ in a tangible, practical way for those who were without, that they would at least have shelter and friendship for the course of the week that they were with us. So I asked the people that brought to my attention, what do they mean by social gospel? And their response was anything dealing with the physicality. Anything that wasn't spiritual is not something we should be engaged in. The reality is that the issue of social gospel, if there is, is simply those who are only concerned with the physical nature and either deny or never get to, meeting the spiritual needs. We don't always have that opportunity. We can pray for that. We need to be prepared to give reason for the hope that we have. Evangelism is vitally important here across the the seas. Wherever we are able to share the good news, we want to do so. But it is not an either or. And if we are going to be faithful to Christ, we need to be serving all. And I say that very good authority, because if you were to flip a few chapters later, Jesus is addressing people, declaring, here's what's going to happen when the judgment comes. There are people that are on his right that he says, welcome. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was in need, you clothed me. And then he speaks to those on his left, and he said, depart from me, because when I was in need... You didn't do anything for me. Now the ones who were invited in, the ones who were declared righteous, said, Lord, when did we see you in need? And he said, anytime you ministered to those who are the poor, those who are in need, anytime you were ministering to need, you were doing it not only for them, you were doing it to me. But conversely, anytime you saw somebody that is in need and the poor in your community and you did not minister to them, you were ignoring Not only them, but you were ignoring me. Jesus is pretty serious, not only in the demonstration of his life, but in the illustration of his judgment and instruction, that if we are to serve, we don't serve only for spiritual reasons. We serve holistically in tangible ways that I can't possibly enumerate because the ways of service are only limited by your imagination. Third, what's the scope? All right, we realize we're supposed to serve real needs that we're aware of, spiritual and tangible alike. But who is it that we're supposed to serve? I mean, who is it that we are supposed to help? Well, let's begin with Jesus' example again. Who did Jesus come for? Jesus said he came for sinners. Jesus came for the disciples who demonstrated their own unworthiness by their lack of understanding of the way the kingdom worked. Well, we wouldn't call their interaction necessarily grotesque sin unless you assign the worst motives to all the disciples of wanting that position of authority. Their worst sin, if that demonstrated here, was ambition. But nevertheless, sin is sin. Jesus came for sinners. And his instruction to them is that he came for the least of these people, In other words, if you want to be great, that you serve. Not just go out and serve, but you serve even the people that nobody else loves, nobody else wants, nobody else considers worthy of receiving service. The one who is willing to plunge themselves and even become a slave to the people who are the most worthless, according to the society, that's the person who is greatest in the eyes of the kingdom. Yeah, but what about the people who don't deserve it? I mean, they've they plunge themselves by the behavior, their choices in their own lives. What do I deserve? What do you deserve? Since when does Jesus treat us according to how we deserve? Heaven forbid Jesus would treat us on how we deserve. Jesus said, I came for those who are messed up. I came for the sick. I didn't come for those of you who are healthy and good looking. So the basis of understanding the benefit of a recipient from Christ is that we have to recognize that we're messed up. So, therefore, we're sent to people who are messed up. All right. Even if we can concede that, well, what about the people who just have demonstrated over and over again? You help them and then they mess up. They go back and do what they've done. If we help them again, they're just going to go do the same things. I mean, do they still deserve the help that we, that we offer? Again, how many of you have said at one time or another, I can't believe I did that again? And of course, we find somewhere in the Scriptures, I assume, or you found somewhere in the Scriptures, Jesus says, look, one strike, two strikes, three strikes, you're out, buddy. And if you found that, you've got a wrong Bible. Jesus does not treat us according to the way our sins deserve. Jesus treats us according to the way his love is poured out. And the fact is, all of us who were recipients of grace that we did not deserve, even after receiving that grace, continue to wander in one way or another, even back sometimes into the very things that broke us in the first place. And Jesus' love knows no end and he continues to minister to us. So somebody doesn't forfeit the opportunity to receive mercy, to receive service, simply because they continue to do stupid things. They are in need of serving. The only thing that ever cuts off mercy is mercy itself. In other words, the only thing that would ever stop giving service to somebody is because you have come to a point and probably not only a personal judgment, but in consultation with others, aware of the situation and also care, come to realize that that person just does not get it. They really have not hit rock bottom. And as a result, they're not really broken. They're just somebody who's drowning and trying to save themselves. And we don't wish anybody to experience rock bottom, except that it's only at rock bottom that we then realize that we need saving and not just help. And so the only thing that would cut off mercy is when the person then might then hit rock bottom so that we can jump right back in and begin to help them in their tangible and in their spiritual ways. That's the only thing that drops that off. And Jesus is quite clear about that, is that we are to help even the least who are around us. The point of what we're looking at today in this passage is this, is that I want to encourage you to develop a rhythm of serving in your life. Having been served by Christ, you are freed. You are now able to serve whether you fail in your attempts or whether you have unprecedented success. Your identity is rooted in what Jesus has done in his love for you, not in your success or failure. And I know that I'm speaking to some of you who do incredible things throughout this town, whether you are feeding the poor working with the homeless, mentoring internationals coming and in trying to learn language. They're, you're, they're, people in this congregation are doing tremendous things. And for those of you who are involved, in, I just say thank you and lead us into finding other ways where we can pour ourselves out for the benefit of our neighbors, for the sake of the glory of Christ. There are others of you who are willing but you're not sure where to begin or what it is that you should do. And Again, it's limited by imagination, but for practical ways, there's some things that we do and give you opportunities in the church, not limited to what we do, but for one, our small groups, each are endeavoring to find a way that they can serve a component of our community. And so you might find whatever service your group is doing enjoyable and realize, I'm going to do this consistently and not just occasionally. We have... Items throughout the year that we do for a short period of time, which are more than symbolic because we are tangibly trying to meet a need, whether it's filling food for the food shelters and other other people in need or uh, whether it's a blood drive. But we call them kind of a splash because we're doing them, we're getting out. But you might find one of those things grabs your attention, grabs your heart. Maybe those aren't the things we have a list of things that are we suggest we're happy to talk and encourage in any way. Don't allow your lack of knowledge of where to start to hinder you from developing and cultivating a rhythm of serving. And the reality is, some of you just couldn't care less. And to you, I would say, go to God. ask for him to show you the mercy to show you your own heart as to whether or not one you belong to him or what it is that you are not understanding of the mercy that has been given to you that keeps you from pouring yourself out you are still not free sometimes there's christians oftentimes there are people who genuinely are christians i'm not saying you are not a christian i'm saying you have reason to ask yourself am i But whether you are a Christian or whether you are not, if your heart is not poured out in some way for service of people who are in need, who are around us, that Christ is saying, that's what's going to be the mark of my people. You do have need for repentance. and You do have need for a continual infusion of His grace. Because I cannot finish in saying it any better than what the Apostle or what James said. You show me your faith, I'll show you my faith by what I do. May that become the mantra of the people of this church. Not because those works will save us. Not because God needs us to be at work. But because God has shown us that the people we serve need us to be at work. And when God's people, empowered by being served by Christ, serve in turn, the power of the gospel changes lives and communities and God has promised will change this world Father we do come we thank you for your word we thank you for the charge we thank you for the fact that grace precedes command And I pray that as a people we would give thanks to you for our, what you have done for us and continue to do you would open our eyes to see what it is that hinders us, that keeps us enslaved. That you would return our ambition to be rather than a selfish ambition to being a holy ambition. And that the greatness we desire will be found not through achievement but through sacrifice. And that through that people that we serve, the people that we serve with, will see beyond us to the one who was sent to give us all hope, and the one who will return to enable us to live in the fulfillment of that hope. We pray it in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.